Hello and welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. In this episode, I had a really enjoyable conversation with the wonderful Vimla Apadu, co-founder and chief cultural officer for Honey Badger. And in 2019, Vimla was included in the top 100 Asian stars in UK tech and also was given a Rising Star Award by We Are The City. Vimla's perspective on design, and in particular culture design, is something that really, really resonates with me. Now, we chat about many aspects of leadership and internal workplace culture, and we speak about what the role of a cultural designer actually looks like and learn more about what sort of methods a cultural designer uses in a day-to-day basis, including how they measure their success. If you haven't already followed Vimla on Twitter, you really should. She's great. The link is in the show notes, but let's get straight into this episode. Vimla Apatu, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's nearly the weekend and been looking forward to speaking to you, I would say all week, but it's been probably for the last five or six months I've been looking forward to speaking to you. You were meant to be speaking at Design Politics, the conference, but obviously we had to cancel it this year. So i um, excited to finally get to speak to you in person. Yeah, it's definitely been a long time coming. Well, let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I'm a service designer by trade, but that's not necessarily how I started off my career. So I studied history and politics at university. And unlike most of the people on my course, I chose it because I wanted to study something I was interested in, not something that would get me a job. I didn't want to be a lawyer and I didn't want to be a history teacher, which are the two things they told us we could do with our degree, which meant I spent all of my free time at university getting experience and understanding who I wanted to be and who I was. And actually, I ended up working in tech startups in tech environments and convinced myself I wanted to be a coder. Mm. And I quickly realized I didn't. Uh, (laughs) I can't code, despite having tried to teach myself for a long time. But where it did lead me was web agencies. And the first place I started Mm. working was a web agency that was using service design to upsell clients and project manage. And that was my role. So I learned Ah. service design on, on the job. And actually, what sparked my interest most was the application of service design for good for purpose and yeah. I then started my own business at 21 and won the NHS as, as the first client that we had and it just kind of snowballed nice. from there ran that as, as a passion project and then refocused myself on tech for good for profit and purpose and using service design to support um small businesses scaling businesses and then through to the public sector wow you've done so much and you're writing a book at the moment as well aren't you yeah yeah I'm writing a book on culture design so throughout that journey what's really spoken to me the most probably what I'm I've always been the most passionate about in different guises is people so even when I go back to what I studied and what I chose to write my dissertation on there's always been people focused and more anthropological Mm. and I took all of that learning to my profession and I've always been keen to understand dynamics of people how you you build safety in environments and what it means to really live the culture that an organization sets out to achieve Mm. rather than this is the story we tell to sell but the reality behind the doors or in the office is really different and it's a nice segue into today's topic of about why we're thinking about culture in the wrong way and it's it's a topic that i've seen 
quite a lot, both in Australia and Ireland as well. What businesses say they do and what they actually are like buying closed doors are often two very different things. What's your take on this? So I, I try very hard to always believe in good intent and that no mm. organisation sets out to purposefully have two two personalities. I just, I think what is often overlooked is how to scale culture and how to adapt it to new environments and how to focus on on people and understanding how to get them to be the, them, their best selves to then deliver their best work. I think the focus is often on the best work and that drives mm. all of the decision making. And that's really, for me, the crux of why we've got culture wrong, because we've we've always seen it traditionally as values, mission and vision. And that mm. therefore defines the culture. And that's decided by the people at the top. And my my theory of change is actually if we flip the model and we start with the individual to then define the team culture that then defines the organization culture and get into the habit of doing that, we can we we redefine productivity and efficiency to then prove our ROI in a different way. There's no one type of culture and the subcultures are completely fine and should be embraced. But there's a disconnect between what the executives are saying the business stands for and when you're within the teams and what it's actually like. So is it a case of creating a a reality bites between those two worlds or creating a bridge or should we just, you know, start again as regards reframing what culture is? I think it, it needs to go hand in hand. I think the reality is the first step to then reframing what culture is because we believe the stories we tell ourselves to then inform our reality. And that's the bit mm. that needs to be broken because if you're surrounded by people that tell you how great it is, but then go into the kitchen and have a very different conversation with their team, that's the issue. And for me, that's about trust and psychological safety and understanding of openness and transparency which most organizations will say are their values, but then most organizations also have that problem. So yeah. it's it's trying to untangle the, the perception we have versus the reality that exists, but then rethinking actually, we, we're forced, particularly in our society, to, to leave our culture at the front door and then step into the work culture. Yeah. And what I'm saying is we need to break that down in order to get that psychological safety and in order to get mm. that transparency and openness. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember a post you made on LinkedIn about four weeks ago around the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and how the different networks, like I'm active on Twitter, you're active on Twitter, and on Twitter it was we were all talking about it, whereas yeah. on LinkedIn, no one mentioned it. It's like yeah. Basil Fawlty, like, don't mention the war. It was one of those cases where it was strange, eerily strange why it was like being just not spoken about. What, what, why do you think that was? I think with Black Lives Matter in particular, it's race is an issue that you don't speak about publicly. Mm. And therefore, you definitely don't take it into the workplace because it's political it's automatically political Mm. and I think that's why people were afraid to post about it on LinkedIn because it's it's alienating and it's hard and it's often seen as not belonging in the workplace the irony is that's the problem yeah why it's never been addressed and why it's never it won't be resolved until we get comfortable speaking about Mm. it and it's the perfect platform for that change because it's 
yeah it's, it's the business leaders it's the people that get to make the decisions it's mm. it's who should be having those conversations it's bridging that gap of what I was talking about from the executives and back into the teams and yeah. if the executives aren't even seeing it in their own streams of reality it's kind of amplifying the problem it's not really tackling it yeah but then you've got the algorithm problem as well so as soon mm. as I posted that everything I saw on LinkedIn was Black Lives Matter related so there was an interesting thing for me of how am I being dictated to by what I already say and therefore what conversations am I not a part of that will inform my thinking or help me on this journey that whole echo chamber thing of where you just start feeding you're feeding into and you're missing all those other opportunities and that's something that can probably be said true of, of the workplace as well If you're part of a team that is focused on this, you're missing out on all these other opportunities. So looking at culture from your your own eyes, what are the things that people need to to do more of to improve the situations within the workplace? Yeah, I think it's it's threefold. I think there's leadership that needs to understand the Mm. role that they play in empowering everyone to take ownership of the culture. And even though it's scary and can feel disempowering to do that, I think that's the role. That's the role of a new leader in in whatever world happens next. Um, then it's the kind of the middle manager role of enabling teams and different environments to do their job and building those subcultures, as you mentioned before, to to do that at different levels and work across different personality types and different cultures and different as in personal cultures. And then the thing that I think is really missing from education, from jobs, from everything really is conscious self-reflection in the workplace and taking yeah. the time out of the, the personal development to really think about who you are and where you want to be and building the support frameworks to do that. And letting people know it's okay if they don't know and don't want to think about it, but giving people the opportunity to do so to then actively mm. inform the subculture and the, the higher culture as well. It's interesting, just going back to one of the points that you made there around leadership. And I did work for um, a financial institution probably about a year or two ago, whatever. And I was speaking to somebody who was running the design team and they were moaning about leadership, mm. not being able to own these things. And I had to take a step back and say, you're leadership. You are leadership to the team. So you are a leader. And he's like, yeah, but I don't have the power to do that. And I'm like, yeah, you do. You're a leader. You're a business leader in in the eyes. But the title of leader was missing from their title. And that whole kind of disconnect between what he was actually doing on a day-to-day basis. um, Not having the title of leader or executive or manager. Any of these powerful labels that are associated with, typically with, with leadership. So it's it's like some people sometimes people don't even realize what a leader is. Yeah. So when we say leadership, like how can we get around that? Like yeah, it's it's. I have a similar conversation around because I talk about changing the world a lot, and yeah. the pushback I get is like a, a reality check of you, you you can't change the world, and I'm I often say. In, in response well changing the world doesn't mean changing the whole world it's changing someone's world and that could be changing my world or changing a stranger's yeah. world or changing a system or process within something and I say the same thing about leadership it's not about the title or the salary or the job description it's about being able to help enable someone to do something and that means 
enabling yourself, enabling a colleague, enabling even the person that's meant to be your manager. It's enabling that environment, which is why leadership is so interesting, because we all should be leading in something and, and trying to inspire change around us. But it, again, it kind of goes back to what you were saying of like, there's no one culture that's right for everyone. This isn't going to work for everyone. And that's why culture change is so difficult, because everyone is so unique and so different. And it's about finding the commonalities that help bring people together, as well as supporting and embracing the things that make us different. Mm. And as you scale, that becomes harder because you're bringing more difference and more similarity in. And that's why the role of like culture designer and someone who is responsible for maintaining happiness and safety and consistency is becoming more and more important for me. Otherwise, we won't change things. We won't be able mm. to, to create change. Yeah. So you, you've recently started a new role as CCO of Honey Badger. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's mm. Vimla's business. It's so it's an exciting, <laughs> exciting time. But you mentioned the role of a culture designer there. Okay. Uh, I've heard this a few times this year, and it's something that's emerging. Tell me what that means. So for me, culture design is someone who actively sits between operations, HR, like it sits in between the mm. existing structures and fills the gaps to ensure that the values are being lived and breathed by the organizations and that a set of behaviors exist that ensure everyone is safe and happy. And the reason why that's for me what culture design is, is because for me, that's what's missing. Often yeah. HR falls into the, the legalities of, have we done the right checks? Have we made sure we've got the contract? It's It can feel quite formal. And mm. then operations is often the systems and processes that help us do our jobs. And there's nothing in between that connects those two. Mm. And that for me is, is culture and culture design. And so with it, culture design then has its own set of tools and practices that empower people to be themselves, to do their work, to feel safe and to not have any pushback on who they are or, or who they want to be it's it's yeah it's the, the intangible bits can you talk to me a little bit more in the tools that a, cult, a culture designer will use because i'm really interested in yeah the, meth, the methods that you, you'd be using in a day-to-day -day. yeah so a lot of them i've adapted so cassie robinson's user manual i've adapted to understand more about how you, how you take that reflection and scale mm. it so how do you go from this is my user manual to this is the team user manual and pulling out those consistencies in a language that makes sense for everyone and doing that again across numerous teams um, and then building the canvases that sit alongside it. So I've also, I love Julia Middleton's uh, core and flex dynamic that she talks about in cultural intelligence. And then again, how you use that to speak not just about yourself as an individual but how you do that across teams and organizations and really zoom it right out so that you've got your core of who you are that then helps define the core of this other thing that then gets bigger and bigger and bigger but keeps you united but can mean lots of different things to lots of people that sounds amazing yeah she's great is, is she an author yeah she's an author she set up the organization common purpose oh yeah so she wrote yeah she wrote the book defines common purpose as you're speaking here Vim at the moment i'm getting really excited because this industry sounds something that i would actually really love and it's it's a new discipline of design that that would excite me why do you do what you're doing it actually is it's rooted in my career as a service designer 
particularly a service designer mm. working in messy systems and processes yeah. in the public sector particularly and we the teams I was in and myself just doing great work like nailing the research nailing the redesign and then getting to implementation and the decision making me like no not ready for that never going to happen sorry <sighs> or we'll just leave the report and then we'll make the decision when you leave and you know as a service designer mm. that nothing's going to happen no one's no one is even going to read the report and so it was that lack of commitment to change that really made me realize the problem wasn't the work as a service designer it was the culture of change within an organization and in order to create systemic change actually the culture needs to shift and be redesigned and rethought through to remove those barriers and to enable different levels within an organization to do their best work to then unlock the potential for change for service design product design so typically most people listen to the podcast will understand what service design is but within the research phase of a typical design project you're surfacing those pain points. Is that typically what you're doing as well? You're researching the employees effectively. Yeah. Yeah. How how do you go about doing that? Because building trust as part of that process will be integral. Yeah. And it's interesting. So the resistance to engage out of fear Mm. that you might lose your job. Yeah. Is really, is really the kind of crucial point. And part of it is, not being scared to address that in the room and saying mm. like no one's going to lose your job but you might just be doing something very different but the thing that you will be doing is something you love not something you hate which you might be doing now yeah. and that's that's the really important part of the conversation is building the trust through genuine intent and genuine outcome and the the frustrating thing is is people are so used to an organization coming in and doing sticky notes and post-its and workshops and feeling good and then leaving and nothing happens so it's really important for me to make sure that's not what happens now it's Mm. it is like changing the value model that we sell into organizations so that it's we're not going to do a one-off workshop because Mm. it's not worth my time and it's not worth your time because nothing's going to change as a result of it but we will do this long-term project with you um Mm. that might that's going to feel very different but will have a much longer lasting change yeah so what kind of research activities do you use because qualitative might be a tricky subject telling you problems that you're currently having in the workplace and for fear that they might see you in the canteen and you know all the secrets and suddenly it becomes all about power which is what we're trying to really dissolve effectively so tell us how you how you're getting around those kind of quandaries yeah so this is where my co-founders become really important because we see change within an organization happen on three fronts the culture side, the experience side, and then the numbers side. So we're not just going to be married. We're not just doing the qualitative. We're looking at the numbers around the metrics that we measure and how we baseline the change that we're trying to see, which for me as a service designer was always the part of the conversation that was missing the most is mm. how, how are we going to prove that this service does what it says it's going to do over a long period of time? And other than a business case, I didn't have the skills to... Yeah. I'm not a data analyst. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't grapple with it. Um, and yeah. the experience part is the online and offline experience of how you operate within an organisation. So, if this is how you do your job, this is the system and the process that you use. But what are the conversations that sit around it? Mm. What is it that? What's your 
onboarding to offboarding experience with this organization how do you actually navigate your career journey here and mm. then it's the kind of culture research of the the manuals the zooming in and out the piecing it all together the nuance of how you have a conversation with someone and how you address difficult conversations and how you build the safety in around that yeah you mentioned about the metrics there can you talk to me what those metrics are um i'm re- really interested in terms of the employee experience aspect yeah. is, is happy happiness one of them happiness is one of them but it's also the thing that i dislike the most because yeah. it's the, the most deceiving so in the same way customer satisfaction means nothing if you don't yeah. understand why people aren't satisfied so yeah. it's it, a bit of a loaded question i'm sorry so for happiness yes we want to make sure people are happy i don't think we've nailed how you measure happiness in an organization yet Tomer Sharan had a, had a wonderful series of a mini program I signed up to recently and it was about measuring happiness. And I was interested to see his perspective on it and how you measure happiness is, is completely contextual. Mm. So you, me- you measure happiness at 4 p.m. on a Friday in an office. You're going to get pretty good scores because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're going home for the weekend. You measure at nine yeah. o'clock on a Monday happiness. It's going to get a really low score. Yeah. So it's it's completely worthless as a, as a metric, really. It's satisfaction and, and other areas maybe a little bit more so but happiness isn't i was just interested yeah. to see how, how you managed to get around those kind of yeah fake of metrics thing, yeah the vanity metrics some of the things we're looking at asking things like do you plan on staying at this organization for the next two years to get a sense of if people how how committed people are to an organization but then as you mentioned before you've got the trust issue and the safety yeah. issue and how do you ensure that people feel that there's not going to be any bounce back and that's where you, you we, we have to be marrying the qualitative with the quantitative because mm. actually if people are saying yes they're going to stay there for the, the two years then your retention rates don't show that something's going wrong and we need to understand why and this is why culture design is so important because no one's putting that information together yet to tell a story yeah and what's really frustrating me now particularly with everything with black lives matter that's happened is we're collecting all of this, these protected characteristic data, particularly at large organisations around. We've got X percent of our um, employee base are, are BAME or um, under 35 or whatever it might be. But we don't then collect that data on leavers. So we're not saying, well, women of this age tend to be leaving this organisation. I wonder why. Or black people don't stay here for longer than a year. What's going on? And that, like, reflection and feedback's not happening and when you say it it's so obvious but then to actually implement it's another thing yeah and it's kind of hard because your research study has effectively left the building and they're the ones that are holding the most information and the most power and there's been times where people have said to me you know exit interviews are are worthless because what's in it for you You you, you're gone like there's there's Mm. only things that are going to follow you i don't agree with that I, i believe in and leaving and saying like, these are the reasons why I'm leaving but typically I just haven't really I've never seen organizations do anything with that information of of merit yeah, yeah. it's again the, the thing with Black Lives Matter that's jarring me the most is the PR response of we'll make a change mm. and then everyone's like yeah you'll make a change and then I just there has okay. to be follow through yeah so it's change management and it's lots of other aspects organizational restructure perhaps as well to to help address those problems 
Yeah, but it's even I've had I've been inundated with people asking me for connections to diverse communities for talent for as a talent resource. Like we know we're not good enough. Can you introduce us to X X X X X whatever? And like, good on them. They're trying, but mm. that's not the point. It's about building the environment once someone joins that they feel safe enough to be themselves. So there's no point hiring a woman if you've not then created a network or safety in the organization for them to exist. And yeah. that's the bit that's frustrating. Me, is like, I will not do that unless you tell me what you've put in place to mean they'll get recruited, they'll be supported, there is psychological safety, they won't get bullied. Tell me what yeah. you've done there. It's funny. Um, I saw, I can't remember the name of the company, and if, even if I did, I probably wouldn't name it. But in Australia, um, where I've spent most of my life, the there was a, a web page of a board, a typical board, and they'd obviously done their very best to get a gender balance or a, a balanced board of sorts, but yet everyone was white and they'd completely missed this opportunity because Australia is so diverse, but yet yeah. it's, they miss all these opportunities. So how can we be in 2020 and still have this conversation where leaders are just missing the biggest opportunities to, to make a statement and yet they just keep on perpetually making the same mistakes? What yeah. needs to change? A, a recognition that intersectionality exists <laughs> i don't just tick one box i have lots of different cross references that make me me and by you compartmentalizing change and say okay we're going to do gender now then our 2021 ambition is going to be this yeah. and then 2022 we might look at sexuality what happens if you tick all those boxes and it's so frustrating and this is why culture is again so important because we organizationally and to feel say to have an easy conversation we break it up we put it into parts we put it into boxes but that's so disconnected from the lived experience of people that mm. we don't we're not influencing change we're influencing people to deconstruct themselves to fit an agenda that's mm. external and in order to really make people feel like themselves we need to embed that kind of inclusivity from the from mm. the beginning i mentioned before we were speaking i spoke to aubrey blonde at atlassian and has now since moved on to culture amp and when i was speaking to them they said to me that how they manage culture at a global scale is, is infinitely harder and so how do you go about ensuring your values are uh, adopted in each one of those offices whilst taking in the local local cultural considerations and it was really it was a I thought it was a tough, tough question. She goes, well, they, they said they just basically had to replicate the locale that they were in. So if they were in Mexico, that there was, they would do a, a sort of a split of what that culture looked like in Mexico City, and they'd replicate that in the office. So if you have an office in San Francisco, there'd be a certain percentage of people of, you know, it was reflective of the society of San Francisco and the same way in Sydney as well to make sure that it was an inclusive it was it was almost societal driven. Their culture was reflective of what society in that locale was saying. Is that something that you believe in? Is that something like the right approach? Yeah, I think it's a great starting point. I think organizations have to reflect the communities that they serve. Otherwise they're not they're not serving anyone, they're serving themselves. 
but I also think my my really good friend Annette Joseph who's the founder of Diverse and Equal talks a lot about the fallacy of meritocracy so we convince ourselves that we operate in a meritocracy so you work hard you get rewarded for it and in theory that's true the best person for the job should get the job it takes away from the fact that there are so many barriers for people to get equal access to opportunities but it also ignores the data so um, the data shows above and beyond that minority groups overachieve and overperform when put against cvs of any counterpart Mm. and so if it were a true meritocracy there would be diversity in the boardroom and in organizations because Mm. the percentage in the data shows that they are the best people for the job and that's a really hard pill to swallow because it's a statistical reflection that we are biased and it takes strength of character to be able to say that to yourself and to accept it and learn how to move on and I think that's where we're at at the moment there are people that are waking up to that and trying to affect change. And hopefully that's what we'll see over the next few years. Yeah. So lo- looking at the next few years, it's it's a good segue into my next question. What do you think businesses are going to have to address to improve culture? What are the, what are the key things that you're, you're hoping businesses are going to wake up and start doing more of? Listening, if I had to put it bluntly. But listening to the listening to society and listening to the people that work there because we've been driven so much by profit and gains and survival and the past few months have shown us that we can adapt when when we're forced to and we can keep going when we're forced to and so it's time to sit back and listen now and understand how people want to work and need to work in order to keep to, for them mm. to survive not for the business to survive because if your yeah. employees are happy and able to do the work they need to and in a, in a way that works for them then the business is going to be better but I think the, the business of the future has to be one that takes into consideration more than just profit I think it has to be a purpose-led organization and I think we'll see that through future generations and um, valuing value in their work that they do yeah it's one of those questions that I'd love to believe that that's going to be possible. But having those conversations, definitely in the shorter term, it's going to be very difficult for businesses to avoid this whole growth, this attraction to hyper growth and keep growing, 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 make more money, yeah. make more money, that capitalistic mindset. Do you think we can solve that? Is that is that realistic? you think that we can move them away from that? Purpose-led is one thing. Yeah, well, I think we have to accept it's going to take a long time to happen. So it's not going to be next mm. year. It's going to be generational, like two or three generations time. That's yeah. where the change will happen. Yeah. And, and that's difficult as a designer to accept because I want change now. So it's one thing, you know, business have got this hyper attraction to, to growth. And I guess I'm, I'm cynical in some ways about this whole the, the purpose led piece because I, I'm speaking to business leaders and it's so difficult to move you've got shareholders and you're IPO'd and they need to see money and all that kind of stuff. How long do you think it is, it's going to take for organizations to wake up and realize that purpose-led is something that they're going to have to, to move towards? Yeah, I think, I think organizations are waking up now, but I think as designers, we have to accept that it's a long process yeah. and the change. Two weeks, we want three weeks. <laughs> tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Six months. We, yeah, I give it six months and we'll see, we'll see a different world. But I think 
we have to accept that this is going to live beyond us. It's going to take generations and not even the next mm. generations, two or three generations to come before we see that real change. Yeah. And I think there's a big learning process that needs to happen. Like I say, it is happening now, but the world itself has changed and the world society now is going through trauma mm. and organizations will need to understand how to cope with that trauma and support people on the other end of it and that i think will be the kind of engine turning on for some of that speed but it will then slow down again and then it will speed up again but i'm i'm very hopeful and i, I genuinely think there will be intent and good that comes from this like genuine intent for change but I do think the role of government needs to step in as well and play a voice in changing shareholder agreements and investment yeah. and putting more policy around your ship, your borders there to keep you in check, not just for your returns, but for your purpose as well. Yeah, I saw this morning Julie Arden in New Zealand had a fantastic quote around focusing on children and, and education and that's the role of government. And mm -hmm. if the role of government is not that, then what is the point of having government? And it's so true. Like uh, there's Very a couple true. of lead, couple of, couple of leaders globally that I'm pointing at, kind of a beacon of hope. Yeah, there's life at the end of this tunnel. Yeah, um, it's literally at the end of the world. It's then New Zealand. It's they, they seem to have one of the most remarkable leaders leading the way. So Vimla, we're coming towards the end of the episode, and you mentioned at the start of our conversation today that you're in the early stages in the research stage should i say of writing a book talk to me tell me what it's about and yeah. uh, maybe how the human centered design network the listeners could help maybe absolutely so i'm writing a book on culture design and as you as you mentioned it's so new and understanding the methodologies and tools that exist mm. and one of the things I do a lot of public speaking and I, I got frustrated at myself for leaving people feeling happy and content and uh, feel good, but not giving them the tools to go and actually affect change. And so the, the book is an answer to that. It's it's a set. Every chapter is a hypothesis. And the research that I've done so far is to test those hypotheses. Mm. And, and readers will be left with a set of tools that they can walk away with if they find themselves in that situation. The, these are some of the things you can do to change, lift yourself out of it or spark a new conversation in the workplace. Right. And that, yeah, that's kind of my ambition for it. It's like a build your own adventure kind yeah. of yeah. workbook. I like exactly. it. I had a similar idea a number of years ago, but yours sounds much, much better. Yeah, when do you think I, we're going to be able to read it? Uh, hopefully next year. So I'm writing it at the moment contrary to kind of common book writing practice I want to get my first draft done before speaking to a publisher because I think I'm under enough pressure as it is <laughs> so yeah. you've launched a business and yeah. now you're writing a book and you want to get feedback before you give it to a publisher yeah sounds sounds great <laughs> yeah so that's my aim so nice. it's in motion it's I'm really happy with how it's going so far and the research I've done I've I've worked I've spoken to people at all levels of all organizations from builders to designers and everything in between so it's been an amazing mm. learning journey for me to to just see the consistencies across culture and, and the inconsistencies as well and what it really means to design a culture that works for people well when you finish the book here's the invitation you have to come back on and tell us all about it i know we'd Absolutely. all love thank you so much for your time today i've really enjoyed speaking with you thank you so much thanks for having me
So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.